A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Kia ora and welcome from RNZ National. Here's Our Changing World with me, Alison Balance. It's Science Honours season again, and last night, the Research Honours Dinner in Christchurch, hosted by the Royal Society of New Zealand, saw 15 medals given out. I'm going to catch up with three of the 2016 winners, starting with the recipient of the big award, the Rutherford Medal. The Rutherford recognises exceptional contributions to the advancement and promotion of public awareness, knowledge and understanding. It's been awarded to Emeritus Professor Michael Corbulis, from the University of Auckland. Michael is a cognitive neuroscientist in the School of Psychology. A big congratulations, Mike, on winning the Rutherford Medal. Thank you, Alison. Now, this is the culmination of a fantastic lifetime of work. How long have you been at the University of Auckland? Well, I, I guess I started here in 1960 as a, as a master's student. I had a period away um, in Canada at McGill University, since then, I've been a professor uh, at Auckland. And your work is involved with, uh, I think of it as the language and the mind. Those are the two areas that really interest you. Well, it really started with an interest in brain asymmetry and the differences between the two sides of the brain and in things like handedness. Uh, but, of course, language is one of the things that is strongly lateralized in the brain. So I've gradually drifted more towards trying to understand language itself and trying to understand its evolution. So tell me a bit more about handedness and the brain. Well, I mean, it's been always been known that most humans are right-handed. And uh, right-handedness is, is clearly a function more of the brain than of the hand, because our hands look uh, pretty much alike. Um, so uh, handedness is, was perhaps the first sign that the brain functions asymmetrically, that one side of the brain is dominant over the other for certain things. Uh, and then it was discovered in the 19th century that the left side of the brain, which is also controls the right hand, is also dominant for language. So that's been the sort of drift of what I've, what I've tried to do. What about the area of language? Are your thoughts about it pretty mainstream? Do you have your own thoughts about it? I do. I find myself increasingly at odds with what you might call the Chomskyan view of language, I think, especially with respect to its evolution. Uh, and my view for some years has been that language did not emerge from, from primate calls as a vocal system, but probably came out of a gestural system involving movements, bodily movements. I'm not the only person to hold that view, but I've been pushing it quite strongly for the last 10 or, or 20 years, I guess. Now, you've been working in this area in an academic way, but you're also quite a prolific book writer. Yes, I mean, I try to write about some of this stuff, hopefully in a way that, that people can understand. don't know quite why I got into that, but for many years I taught introductory psychology, which set up the challenge of trying to explain to people what psychology is all about. So I tried to turn that into, into writing. I see you have another book coming out next year, The Truth About Language. The Truth About Language. So that, that again gets into the whole business of where language came from and how it emerged. The thing about language is that most people think that it's uh, uniquely human. And uh, some people even define it as the sort of event that caused the speciation of humans. 
you know, that, that set humans up as a distinct species. That's sort of profoundly anti-Darwinian, I think. So I've been trying to sort of grope towards a theory of how language might have come about in a more stepwise fashion uh, with components that can be detected in, in other species. So a more evolutionary approach. Exactly. So why do you think or how do you think language might have started then? Well, I think it uh, probably came out of uh, communication that was primarily gestural involving movements of the body and of the hands. Primate communication is, is of course, vocal, but it's not really under what you might call intentional control. So animals, when they, when they send vocal signals to each other, don't really have what you might call voluntary control. And if you look at the way they communicate in a more voluntary fashion, it's usually uh, true movements of the, of the body. Uh, things like grooming, for example, is a, is a classic case. And, you know, when animals play, they are communicating bodily. And I like to think that human language grew out of that rather than out of their vocal calls. Now, just thinking in terms of your career, has that been a slow evolutionary progress as well? You know, is there a single event that you can look at and you can go, I think that's the defining moment of my career, or has it been a bit more subtle than that? Oh, it's been more bumbling than that, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) I know I started with a big interest in, in brain asymmetry. I did some work with the split brain patients in California for a while, and I've always been interested in handedness. But then it sort of occurred to me that handedness, the dominant hand, the hand we sort of do most manipulations with, is is controlled by the left brain. And language is controlled by the left brain. So that sort of set me on a course trying to see how the two connect, you know, what they have in common. And that kind of led me to the idea that, well, maybe um, language itself is based on manipulation and on hand movements. And then it was discovered, not by me, by uh, people in Italy, that there's a region of the brain called the mirror system. There are neurons in the monkey brain that that respond when the animal uh, makes a grasping movement or a movement with its hands to pick up um, a peanut or something. But it was discovered um, by chance, really, that the same neurons, the same part of the brain, lights up when the animal watches another individual making the same movement. And that's why they're called mirror neurons. They're kind of monkey-see-monkey-do neurons. Ah. And that sort of seemed a natural sort of template, if you like, for language, because it maps uh, what you see onto what you do. And that's, uh, that's what we do in language. We kind of map what we hear people say onto what, how we say things. So that seemed to be a natural place to start in trying to build up an evolutionary account of how language might have come about. And, of course, you know, uh, sign language is purely gestural. And it's also pure language in the sense that it has grammar and all of the properties that, that uh, spoken language has. So I like to think over the course of time, uh, the system in the primate brain, in the monkey brain, uh, became specialized uh, for a number of things, including communication. And hence, eventually, language was born. That was the 2016 Rutherford Medal winner, Michael Corbelis, at the University of Auckland. The McDiamond Medal is awarded for outstanding scientific research that demonstrates the potential for application to human benefit. This year it goes to Professor Marin Tafai from the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. I develop computational models of lung, so of lung and the respiratory system, um, and of everything that entails. Um, and probably the 
the best way to really say what it is I do is to give you an example. So imagine that you've been diagnosed with a disease such as acute pulmonary embolism, which means that you've got blood clots in your lungs. Um, the risk with this condition is that the heart has to work harder to get enough blood to the parts of the lungs that aren't blocked off by blood clots. And this can lead to heart failure in some patients. So the standard treatment is that people get given um, a blood thinning medication, but that's not really suitable for all patients, and it can mean that they might have to stay in hospital for longer. Another option is um, that the clinician might use surgical removal of the clot, but that has risks and it's relatively expensive. So how does the clinician make a decision about the best treatment for an individual patient? So what we've done over the past 20 years or so is to develop computational models that allow us to predict how lung function will change in response to some intervention. So in this example, removing blood clots. So what we do specifically, we simulate how blood flow redistributes uh, when you have clot present or when you take clot away. Um, the effect that has on gas exchange, the effect that that will then have on the load on the heart. So using that sort of analysis, we can predict the maximum possible benefits of removing clot under a best case scenario. So we're hoping that once we've finished validating this method, that this would add significant information to assist uh, clinical teams with their decision making. So what that actually requires is some pretty sophisticated methods to simulate uh, on a computer, individual patient lungs, airways, blood vessels, as well as the interaction between all of the functions that the lung uh, performs. I imagine that's quite complex to do because the lung is a complex organ. It is extremely complex, um, so we do use some pretty advanced, sophisticated methods, and it has taken a long time to put all of this together and it's not something that we do in isolation so it requires a lot of collaboration particularly with our international collaborators so to access really high quality data that then informs our models. It requires collaborating with clinicians so we have our really good uh, relationships with local clinicians particularly in Auckland um, so a lot of people who are helping to inform what we do making sure that we, that we describe things in the right kind of way. How long did it take you to build what I imagine you had to do first was a model of like a healthy lung before you could then start plugging in the individual variation that patients were turning up with? Yeah, that's, that's right. So we did start off by modelling the healthy lung. You know, you first of all, you want to be able to just understand, you know, so can we even model a lung? Can we simulate lung function at all? And most of the data that that is in the literature, firstly does describe healthy lung and it tends to describe a young adult healthy lung which is quite different from an old healthy lung and quite different from a, a young lung with lung disease. Um, so to just develop all of the basic methods to be able to simulate lung function is, is took, took many years of research but now we're in a position where we really have all of these tools in place uh, we have them well validated, they've been used in a lot of studies, so we're very confident in how they work um, and how to use them correctly. So what that means is now we're able to, to really turn our attention to many different types of lung disease um, and really give us a, a, a great new level of understanding and prediction um, of response to therapies. This sounds like a fantastic way of personalising a surgical procedure. 
Well, that's what we would hope in the future um, that we would be able to do. So again, acute pulmonary embolism is one example. There's also the chronic form of the disease, so where, where people have a, um, they can develop a high blood pressure in the lung in response to some occlusions that develop in the circulation. So again, there are risks if, if they decide to do surgical removal. So what sort of benefit would an individual get from these different procedures? Um, so, yeah, many different areas of application. So this area of computational physiology uh, seems to require that you to be both a mathematics expert and a biologist. Yeah, more a physiologist than a biologist. Um, so I would I trained as an engineer, um, so all of my uh, degrees are in engineering, engineering science, which is really about um, mathematical modelling, uh, continuum mechanics, uh, and its application within so engineering analysis. So I come from a very sort of analytical, mathematical background, um, but I've always been very interested in in more the biology, physiology. So working in lungs, I mean, the any any respiratory physiologist is actually probably quite comfortable with mathematics, at least in its most you know, basic form because respiratory physiology does require a lot of equations to describe lung function. So even if you think of yourself just as a physiologist, you'll still be quite exposed to maths. So for me, coming in very much from the mathematical side, I think is a is a big advantage because I'm even more comfortable with the with the these underlying equations that describe things. But then I can also appreciate how to take that to the next level. So. How can we use you know, far more advanced analysis um, of lung function? That was Merin Tafai from the University of Auckland, winner of the McDiamond Medal. The 2016 Callaghan Medal, awarded for outstanding contribution to science communication, goes to Professor Hamish Spencer from the University of Otago. Hamish says he's accepting the award on behalf of colleagues in what was the Alan Wilson Centre. It's my name on the medal, but really the medal is about much more than me. The medal really is a recognition of a partnership between the Alan Wilson Centre, which I was the director of, and two community groups in the Tairawhiti or Gisborne region. Um, one of those groups is centred at Tolaga Bay, and we set up with, at, uh, really at their, um, on their asking, the Uawanui Sustainability Project. And that project arose because they wanted to do a little bit of restoration work, planting some trees uh, next to the river near the school. And they asked for some help from some scientists, and the Alan Wilson Centre were biologists, and they seemed to think that was appropriate. We weren't actually the right kinds of scientists, but it turned out we knew the right kinds of scientists. And essentially from that little beginning, we asked them questions about what they really wanted to achieve, and um, in a way really helped them work out what their vision for their community was. And then we went about helping them make that vision concrete. So the vision really was to have a healthy environment, a whole catchment-wide environment. So it included environmental health, but also community health. Um, and so the Wilson Centre, as biologists, made sure that they talked to the right sort of scientists about how to do the bits of ecological restoration, um, how to engage with the wider community. So it's not just the the people in the school who are, who are part of the Uawanui Sustainability Project, it really is the whole community. So the um, Maori corporations there, some of the local farmers, some of the um, forestry companies have been involved as well. So it's a community-wide 
environmental restoration project. So Our Changing World was there a few years ago now, mm-hmm. during the last transit of Venus. That's right. And there was a lot of excitement in the community about the project. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, our project grew out of the transit of Venus celebrations. The, one of the things that they were doing as part of that was that tree planting next to the river. So it's really interesting that something like that transit of Venus celebration turned into something that nobody could have ever envisaged. It was you know, nothing to do with, with the planets or uh, the sky or anything like that, but it was really about getting scientists into the community and forging a partnership between the scientists and the community. So this medal really is recognition of a partnership that was developed between the Alan Wilson Centre and these two groups. So I should tell you about the other group as well, really. (laughs) So um, just just south of Gisborne is a little tiny village called Murawai, which is the centre for um, a small iwi nigh to Manahiri. And they had heard about what we were doing up at Tolaga Bay and they said, oh, we'd like you to do something like that for us. Well, like many of these things, it turns out they didn't want to do quite the same sort of thing. They had their own needs, not surprisingly. They were a different community with, with different aspirations and, and in a very different situation. And it turned out that what they wanted to do was not ecological restoration in the same sort of way. They had a real thirst to learn more about science, but also to transform the way that um, one of the local farms that they now had control over, they were post-settlement iwi, um, to manage that in a way that um, benefited the iwi Uh, in the kind of things that we think of as fringe ways. So they wanted to manage it better so that the water that ran off it didn't pollute the estuary from which they collected their kaimawana. Um, It's also the the source of the water for the village of um, Murawai. So there were whole lots of things about farm management that they wanted to change to make it really more sustainable. So in a funny kind of way, it is all about sustainability, but in another kind of way, the the details were, were so different as to need a completely different approach. So you called in a different set of experts? Um, actually, we had similar experts, but they then put them in touch with other people at the end. So they were more sort of farm-oriented. But the whole thing really, uh, there are a lot of commonalities. So uh, one of the commonalities is this this partnership that I keep talking about. It's not just scientists coming along and telling them the local community what they should be doing. It's finding out, the scientists finding out what the community want and then talking to the community and saying, well, you could do this and finding out if that would work or you could do that. Because there's always lots of approaches to solving different kinds of problems. Um, so that, that partnership was, was absolutely crucial. The other thing that was crucial was making sure that these uh, projects themselves were long-term sustainable after the Alan Wilson Centre closed. So the Alan Wilson Centre, the, the funding ceased and it doesn't exist anymore, but both of these projects are going strong. And that's because at the very beginning we made sure that they were set up to be self-sustaining, so that the com- they were community-owned projects, which is why you have to have this partnership process in the first place. Talking of science communication, you're now involved in a slightly different kind of science communication. Mm-hmm. Can you quickly tell me about the work you're doing as a science advisor? Yes, so I'm one of uh, two science advisors at the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. And part of our job, we, we sort of have, we, we're kind of conduit for science. So we're there to help the science community get their message through to the officials at MB, particularly those involved in science policy and science policy administration. But we're also there to get the message from MB and the policymakers and administrators back to the science community. So as I say, we're a kind of conduit for science information and it's actually been a really rewarding job. I've really enjoyed it. It's taken me places I never thought I would have gone and made me 
me talk to people I never would have imagined talking to, and it's been really interesting. And that was Hamish Spencer from the University of Otago, who is also a Chief Science Advisor for the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. Check out our webpage for photos and web features, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.